this podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Monday, June 10th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is a question that must be asked to all Democrats. It was asked to a bunch of them on the Sunday shows here on This Week. George Stephanopoulos. Is there any room in the Democratic Party now for those who oppose abortion? I will get to Beto O'Rourke's answer in a second. But let us also hear this from Face the Nation, a question to Amy Klobuchar. What about on, on the issue of abortion? This is clearly emotional. It is divisive. It is something that does bring people out to vote. Uh, is there any room for a Democratic candidate who supports abortion or, or excuse me, who does not support abortion and like Joe Biden doesn't in the past doesn't think there should be federal funding for it? OK, so the candidates answered the same way. Senator Klobuchar saying Uh, Let me just make my position clear. I'm in total support of abortion rights. Beto said as much, but began his answer with this non-answer. Look, I think that's a a question that the candidates, including Vice President Biden, are going to have to answer for themselves. Wait, the question is, is there a place for anti-abortion candidates in the Democratic Party? Joe Biden will answer that? How? He's a Democrat and he's in the Democratic Party, but he also changed his stance on the Hyde Amendment. Isn't he actually avoiding answering the question or at least causing more, oh, what's the opposite of clarity? Opacity as to if there is a place for anti-abortion Democrats. So let's do this. I haven't done it in a while. Well, I have. I just haven't branded it like I used to. Talk show karaoke where I inject myself and answer the question or answer it the way that it should have been answered. Cue up George Stephanopoulos again. Is there any room in the Democratic Party now for those who oppose abortion? Of course there is, George. But there's no room in the party for any policies that would limit a woman's right to an abortion. But look, a poll just came out that said 17% of Democrats were pro-life. 20% said that abortion should only be allowed in instances of rape or incest or to save the life of the mother. 5% said just to save the life of the mother and 5% of Democrats said never, okay? Add it up, it's 30%. So if we just said to all those 30% of self-identified Democrats, no place for you, we'd be slitting our own throats. Unless, of course, the 29% of Republicans who identify themselves as pro-choice also never voted Republican. You can imagine this. I can imagine this, right? A devout Catholic tries to live by the teachings of the church, not on board with the Democratic Party's policy on abortion. But she looks at the administration's stance on the less fortunate, on immigrants, on oppressive dictators throughout the world, on militarism in general. And that person is torn and that person perhaps votes for what they regard as the overall more moral set of policies. George, remember, I'm answering this question on this week. George, we have two parties. It would not only be stupid, it would be not factual to say there is no place for those who oppose abortion in this party. It is proper to say There is no room in our party for anything but opposing abortion in our policies. That is the truth. But people get it. Voters get it. I have no problem saying what our policies are, but also knowing how actual voters actually vote. Decent answer, right? Now, it does sound even better when standing on top of a lunch counter in Cedar Rapids. On the show today, I spiel about Elizabeth Warren's plans and her plans to pay for her plans. But first... 
Lara Bazelon has been actively representing the falsely imprisoned for years. She did it via the courts as a lawyer. She does it through her teaching work of law students. And now she is doing it in her book, Rectify, The Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. Laura Bazelon is an attorney, a law professor, a journalist, an advocate. She's the author of Rectify, The Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. She has a long history leading innocence projects. She teaches students to do that now. And her book is not just the familiar but really important area of the wrongly accused and convicted. Her book is about what to do next, new ways to conceptualize this problem. Laura, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. I want to, I, I normally don't lay out my, uh, my field plan beforehand, but I, we have a lot to get to and this is what I'd like to do. There are three aspects of your book, which is defining the problem, uh, talking about solutions, but also reconceptualizing the entire way we think about it. I want to get to all of that. It's all good stuff. Let's get to it. Okay. <laughs> One, how bad is the problem of wrongful conviction? I'll, I'll throw out statistics. I respond to statistics. So in the book, 17% of wrongful convictions are attributed to bad defense lawyers, but it's probably a lot higher than that. 45% to prosecutorial misconduct. Then you just have purposeful witnesses lying. That's the majority of the problem. But in numbers, how bad is it? And where else does it come from? So the funny thing is people think it's this kind of freakish event and it doesn't occur very often, but actually by 2016, three people were getting exonerated every week. There's one study that was done by some professors at the University of Michigan where they looked at people on death row who had been exonerated and they determined using pretty standard empirical tools that 4.1% of those folks were wrongfully convicted. So if you extrapolate that onto the prison population as it stood in 2016, you get to something like 63,000 people. And then there are the, what's the phrase from the group exoneration, like the Rampart scandal, uh, kind of a whole root and branch uh, group of people who shouldn't be in jail? Yes. And I think there are two big ones out of my hometown of Philly where a number of people were exonerated. It's basically one or two bad cops kind of targeting a neighborhood and railroading one person after another person into the teens and 20s. Yeah. And think about how many places where there one or the one or two breaks that a journalist or um, someone working on behalf of the public got to figure out and uncover these problems. How many times did that not happen? Exactly. And you have to think, too, about the fact that the people who are making these decisions to frame people, to beat them up, to coerce confessions, they're thinking to themselves, well, these people don't really matter. Their lives are disposable. They're poor. They're people of color. And unfortunately, that's sometimes all too true in that people who want these big investigative pieces aren't necessarily looking for these cases. They're not looking into these problems in the way I think we are now more, but wasn't happening certainly in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Wrongful convictions happen, and there's 3,000 podcasts about them and 5,000 60-minute stories, and we know that, we shouldn't ignore that, but I want to acknowledge that because the book's about a lot more than that. The book's about, well, the title is Rectify and Restorative Justice. What does restorative justice do? Think about it differently, or is it an actual process, a laid-out process with steps to give, quote-unquote, restorative justice? It's both. I mean, it's radically reframing the whole idea of how we conceptualize harm and accountability and moving away from the system we have in the criminal justice system, which is basically 
who did what and how severely are we going to punish this person to asking who is harmed and what are their needs and whose obligation is it to meet those needs, trying to think about a way to heal and move forward and re-knit a community or at least the two people who are most profoundly traumatized by the actual wrongful conviction. And so it can play out in a variety of ways. And it's interesting because it's the first time really in the past couple of years that restorative justice has been used in wrongful conviction cases. Mm -hmm. Usually it's used in cases where there's a so-called true victim and a true perpetrator and that someone was so-called rightfully convicted. Yeah, normally you hear about it, you know, uh, uh, teens, juveniles, uh, some high schools have a restorative justice program, a little bit of a buzzword. And then I think it also has something to do with truth and reconciliation commissions in different countries. But the truth is out there. It's not as if there was no apartheid or there was no slaughter in uh, Rwanda. Um, In America, though, to take those examples and to put it here is reframing uh, the way we think of justice because justice is state versus Bazelon, state versus Pesca. This is thinking about that the the, uh, tensions aren't between a state and just the accused. There are other people involved. Absolutely. And I think it's also an acknowledgement that the legal system has failed in some way to deliver justice. And I feel like it's especially true oftentimes for victims. Even when there's a conviction, they often feel sidelined in that process. They feel that their needs were not met, their ideas weren't considered. And so And they don't get the kind of accountability that they necessarily want. They don't necessarily want someone to go away for a million years. What they want is to sit down sometimes, depending on the victim, but sometimes across from the person and hear from them directly what they did, why they did it, what was kind of driving that behavior, and also to take away from that a sense of, okay, I don't believe that this person understanding what happened to me or what happened to my family will ever do this again. Okay, so by victims, you mean the the actual crime victims, not the ones who are victimized by being falsely accused. And you have examples in your book. Uh, the main example is a woman who was raped at knife point and the restorative justice that she achieved with the guy who was falsely accused really worked. Why? What were the circumstances about that that made that work? Because there are other examples in the book where it doesn't work as well. That's true. Yeah, so now we're moving into the context of using it in wrongful convictions where it's kind of the strange thing where everybody's a victim because the wrongfully convicted person is just as much of a victim as the person who, in this case, was violently raped in a daycare center in a church when she was 20 years old, taking care of little kids. So she was unbelievably harmed, but then this person who she pointed to as her attacker was actually innocent, and of course, he did 26 years in prison, not just as the result of that case, but it was this crazy situation where four other women also identified him falsely. And actually, rape exonerations are pretty staggering in terms of the percentage of black men who are convicted falsely of rape and later exonerated specific to their percentage of the overall population. It's something like an eightfold increase. So it's it's staggeringly race-driven. But how did it happen? The, the RJ part of it, the restorative justice piece happened because the woman, Janet, and I'm allowed to use her name because she's public about about her, what happened in the case, after it was over and she was confronted with this horrible reality of what the truth actually was, she actually made a very strong connection with Thomas Hainsworth's lawyer. This is the person who was ultimately exonerated in the process of trying to get him out, not just on her case, which was easy because they had DNA, but on these Mm -hmm. two remaining convictions where there was no DNA that had destroyed it. And so she was part of the process that ultimately led to the overturning of the conviction. And then it took several years after that for them to meet in person. And that was kind of the second big step for both of them. 
it seems like it, you need a very special set of circumstances for it to work. Uh, is the onus on the wrongly convicted to have some measure of forgiveness to want the person who accused him, usually him, though sometimes not, uh, to want the person to accuse him to have their say or to be unburdened? People think that restorative justice requires forgiveness, but it actually doesn't. So that's not an element of it. And there is no burden on the person who's been wrongfully convicted to forgive. That said, many, many wrongfully convicted people will forgive, and they forgive freely and in a really heartfelt way. And what they will tell you is it's a way of freeing themselves, that until they can actually forgive this person who misidentified them, who in some cases lied or was coerced, um, until they can get to that point, they're not going to be able to move forward with their own lives. And so it's it's actually as much for them in a way as it is for the person who accused them. What about the state's role in all of this? How does it work? Some states have caps about what money can be given to the falsely convicted. But then in my state, there are lawsuits here in New York and you hear about multi-million dollar settlements. Is there one law across America or, you know, how does it work? It is really a crazy patchwork. It's state by state. The federal government has a wrongful conviction statute. So if you were wrongfully convicted in federal court, you can collect. Different states, some states have no wrongful conviction compensation at all. So in Pennsylvania, you get nothing, zero. You can only sue. And the problem is sometimes people don't actually have lawsuits that can survive because the laws around civil liability and qualified immunity for police are very stringent. And so overcoming that can be difficult. And if you can't do that or you don't have a lawyer who's willing to take your case, then you're not going to get any money. Mm. Are the jurisdictions more likely to falsely convict also the jurisdictions least likely to compensate afterwards? It seems to almost be the flip. Texas is actually the most generous, and they have the most wrongfully convicted people in that state by far that we know about. California is also high on the list. And again, we too have a wrongful conviction statute that allows people to collect. So it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Although I was thinking about some states in the uh, deep confederacy seem to be, they seem to be correlated, like Alabama. And Louisiana. Yes. That is true. Yeah. To me, this is a, there's a huge psychological component of it, but there also has to be uh, a monetary and public interest component of it. If you get the people together and people talk about it and maybe understand each other more, that's great. But if the state isn't giving money to the wrongfully convicted, how far can it go? It's really a crime, the way that we treat wrongfully convicted people in this country. And I think you're absolutely right. Until we have some kind of standardized statute that allows everyone to collect, no matter what state they're from, it shouldn't be a freak accident of geography that if you're convicted in Philadelphia, you get nothing. And if you're across the river in New Jersey, you get something relatively decent that will help you live a good life. That said, I also think that money is is not a panacea. It's sort of the bottom line and the least we can possibly do. Um, okay, so here's what I wanted to ask you, and I'll start with this tough question. It's an attorney general race in a state you live in, and Ken Cuccinelli is running against Kamala Harris. Who do you vote for? Oh, my God. I knew you'd like it's that. It's like a law school exam. So, And explain why I'm asking the question. Okay, so one of the unexpected heroes in my book is this guy, Ken Cuccinelli II, and he is... I think my dad would say to the right of Attila the Hun. He's just very, very right. He doesn't really believe in climate change. Trump just tapped him to head immigration. Yeah. He's about to be the immigration czar, which you can only imagine what that involves in terms of policy. He was the first person to sue to have the Affordable Care Act declared unconstitutional. 
But he did this amazing thing where he was Thomas Hainsworth advocate. So as attorney general, rather than defend these invalid rape convictions, he stood up in the highest court in Virginia and said, I am siding with Thomas Hainsworth and I believe that this was a wrongful conviction even though the justices sort of browbeat him. And then he explained what it meant to be a prosecutor, which is to seek the truth, and that he believed that the truth was that this man was innocent and he wasn't going to get up there and stand by convictions that he thought were defective and wrongful. And then he went an extra step and hired Thomas while the case was pending, and he was out on parole as a registered sex offender to work in the attorney general's office, which, as you can imagine, was quite controversial. So, Except, as he would say, if this man's innocent, and I firmly believe he's innocent, I should give him every—it's incumbent upon me to give him every chance in life now that I've done him wrong. That's exactly what he said, and they had this really emotional meeting where Ken Cuccinelli basically broke down and apologized on behalf of the state, even though he had had nothing to do with the original convictions and said, I'm going to do everything I can to help you, and he did. Mm-hmm. So that's Ken Cuccinelli. On the other side, we have Kamala Harris, who was the San Francisco DA and later the attorney general in the state of California. And as your listeners know, one of the top tier candidates for president, running for president for the Democratic nomination. And so I wrote this piece for the New York Times where I pointed out that she was now calling herself a progressive prosecutor, specifically in the book that she just wrote, kind of her autobiography. And I took a lot of issue with that because as someone who lives in California and litigates in that space, I'm very familiar with her record and it is not remotely progressive. So my piece just pointed out line by line what she had done over time to, in my opinion, sort of systemically harm the very people she was now claiming to stand up and represent. So your question to me is, if they're both running for attorney general, Mm -hmm. who am I going to vote for? Yeah. I would vote for Kamala Harris because I feel like on almost every other issue, I would have to be pragmatic and say to myself, the attorney general has many jobs, including civil litigation, including all kinds of criminal litigation. And I would not be a happy camper pulling the lever, but I don't see myself in this life pulling the lever for Ken Cuccinelli. Right. But here's where the Ken Cuccinelli example fascinated me, as well as, as you said, Texas is maybe the most progressive state. It seems to me that there's something other than goodness and badness or the human foible of sticking to your guns and not changing your mind. There's something, some incentive that makes people people or structures or governments that are even more of the law and order mindset that allows them to acknowledge justice and to go about their business in terms of advocating for justice by doing just that, by thinking about justice, not about conviction. And I'm wondering if you have any insights as to what that is. And then I have a follow-up question about this new form of progressive prosecutors. So you're right. And the reason why the more right-leaning states and some Republicans have more wiggle room is that Democrats are terrified of being seen as weak and soft on crime. And that was true really up until very, very recently. And actually, if you look back at different speeches that Nixon gave and Reagan gave and Bush one and two gave and Bill Clinton, they're indistinguishable when they talk about tough on crime, indistinguishable in terms of the language, in terms of their invective. And that's because Bill Clinton had to be tougher than the people on the right. And that's how he ran. And that's why we have the kinds of crime bills that we are living under now and how he contributed to mass incarceration. Democrats just have this real fear that people are going to think they're weak. Whereas someone like Ken Cuccinelli, no one's going to accuse him of being soft on anything. And so I feel like that gives him room to maneuver. And I think it's the same thing for a lot of the Republican legislators in Texas. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's probably a really good explanation. But I also think that Ken Cuccinelli really, really doesn't want to convict guilty people. 
He really doesn't. And Texas doesn't. And there's something getting in the way of maybe Alabama and Louisiana and Pennsylvania. There's something getting in the way other than politics of them achieving that ideal, which is they don't want to. Maybe it's the same religiosity that makes him oppose abortion, right? They, they don't want to be judged as the person who has put a guilty person behind bars. And I wonder if other than just voting for progressive prosecutors, what we can do to kind of allow that space for even a really quote unquote tough on crime prosecutor not to go down the road of false convictions. I think you're right. I do think in some ways it's it's almost a religious feeling about there being kind of one ultimate truth and seeking that and there being really dire consequences for failing to live up to that kind of ultimate responsibility, almost like godlike responsibility to deliver justice as an instrument of the state. And your question is, well, how can we kind of inculcate that in other people so that moving forward, even if they're not so-called progressive Democrats, they're more centrist or Republican types, they'll still embrace that core mission. And I think it really comes down to the way that we train prosecutors about what their ultimate job is. It's just so interesting to me that a lot of them don't understand that their job is to seek the truth and they think that their job is to convict. And then once that's in their head and that's what their office is rewarding them to do, sort of this tunnel vision sets in, cognitive bias sets in where any information that they're getting that is inconsistent with upholding the conviction, they will look away from. They will do anything they can not to see it. That's the incentive structure. I I agree with you. I wonder if the only solution is to elect progressive prosecutors. Just because you're progressive doesn't mean you're going to be better than the the prosecutors, quote unquote, tough on crime. And in fact, in different jurisdictions, there might be uh, justification for one kind and in another jurisdiction, another. And I also think it depends on what you mean by progressive prosecutor. Well, the people who brand themselves that, that, who, you know, the DA of Philadelphia, perhaps this DA in Brooklyn, basically if they want to decriminalize marijuana, that's a pretty good litmus test. Right. And a lot of them do. And then they'll say at the same time, look, I want to redirect these resources toward prosecuting really serious crimes. If you look at the breakdown of statistics in my office, the vast majority of cases we're prosecuting and convicting on are low-level misdemeanors, but we have a really low conviction rate on rape, really low filing rate on murder. And I want to change that. I want to redirect our resources to be tough on those crimes rather than penalize entire communities of color for offenses that aren't really that serious. Lara Bazelon is the author of Rectify, The Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. Thank you. And now the spiel. Let's say you liked football or to the members of my audience who do like football. Hey, remember how you like football? How much analysis and discussion would you want from me, from all of sports media, as far as who's going to win the next Super Bowl? Would you want to discuss it and all the teams and what might happen and the rosters? I'm guessing you wouldn't want too much of that because you know that so much can happen. There's a whole season to play and weird injuries occur and the bad teams are good and the good teams are bad except for the Patriots. Maybe you'd want to know, I don't know, who Las Vegas favors. Maybe you'd want to know some experts saying who seems to have a good roster. But it probably wouldn't make much sense to get intensely involved in handicapping because, you know, the Super Bowl isn't until February 2nd, 2020. And you know what's one day after that? The Iowa caucuses. 
And the Iowa caucuses aren't even the Super Bowl of politics. They're like week one of the regular season. So I have really tried to avoid on the gist too much talk of who will win or speculation of who's up and who's down. I don't even talk about who should win that much. Some candidates have proved to be interesting. Some are interesting for how uninteresting they are, and some are just uninteresting, though you can win me over yet, Seth Moulton. Thus far, on the Democratic side, I have spent most of my time and energy in talking about two candidates, Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. I've done a vetting. I've done a thorough inventory of past gists, and this is true. Now, I think Biden is interesting, not because of anything he says or policies he proposes, but because a lot of the criticism of him is just unfair. It is wrong or misleading in the public consciousness. It doesn't mean I back Biden. I don't. I mean, I can think of four or five other Democrats that I'd rather vote for. I do think However, a percentage of the flack that he's taken has been unfair. And by unfair, I mean not rigorously vetted, not placed in the proper historic context. So on this show, I try to do the job of a journalist and try to do that, give it the proper context. Now, this doesn't mean that every criticism of Biden has been unwarranted. I mean, just last week, hey, Joe, what are you going to do when confronted with your stance on the amendment to ban federal funds for abortions? Hide. Yes, yes, now, as regards that amendment, hide. Oh, I see. Oh, brother. The other fascinating candidate has been Elizabeth Warren. Lots of plans. So many plans. Lots of ideas. Ideas are good. Let me amend that. Having no ideas is bad, but not all ideas are good. In short, let us just stipulate that good ideas are good. Lately, coverage of Elizabeth Warren has been pretty positive. She's been generating what we in news call copy, But I have also noticed this strange quirk in the specific nature of the copy, like in the New York Times, here from May 31st, headline, Biden's appeal to political center test power of Democrats left wing. Yet it is Mr. Biden who currently enjoys an early lead by most traditional measures, buoyed by his name recognition and a perception among some voters that he is best suited to defeat President Trump. That perception has sometimes been fueled by bias including the sexist belief that female candidates are more likely to lose. Okay, two days before, this is just about Elizabeth Warren. That last article was a lot about Elizabeth Warren. May 29th, two days before that article. Like others in the race, she, Warren, is dealing with the so-called electability test as voters assess which candidate they believe is best suited to defeat Mr. Trump, a calculation that can include gender bias in a country that has never elected a female president. Huh, well, yes, it can. I don't know how many other candidates get the not going well in the polls. It's because of a moral failing of the electorate. I don't know how many are extended that explanation. But let's go back to the sexist belief that women are likely to lose. In one way, it definitely is sexist, because if you look at state and local elections, uh, women are a little bit more electable. In fact, they, you know, are more likely to be elected than men. This might have something to do with women in general being more qualified uh, when they run for office than men are. But in another way, it's understandable to have this gender bias, because we do have this one prominent example of the first major party candidate who was a woman, and she did lose. 
It's not right to base everything on that, but it is in a lot of voters' minds. In a third way, it's also incorrect to ding voters for believing that women will lose insofar as you have Tulsi Gabbard, Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, Marianne Williamson, Kamala Harris, and Elizabeth Warren running. And so it's not likely that women will lose. It's certain that five of them will lose. Maybe six of them will lose. And maybe... Six of them will lose, and then Trump will win, and that will mean that all women lose, Ivanka notwithstanding. I think social scientists might be interested in the effects of, a, of an article that reminds voters that this female candidate may be losing because of sexism, especially when the specific way the sexism manifests itself is by worrying about how voters will punish a woman because of sexism. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how the article says that she may be being punished because voters think that women aren't electable? So in other words, that's a sexism rooted in the widespread belief that other people are sexist. And therefore, the person holding that belief would be sexist. But if it is indeed a widespread belief that there is a widespread belief that there's sexism, isn't it also a valid belief and therefore not sexist? The Gordian knot on all of this is as follows, by the way. Vote for who you'd like to be president. Cuts right through it. And by Gordian knot, I mean Kim Gordon, female rock hero, and proof that I am not sexist. I'm also Gen X, but also in touting my lack of sexism, a little sexist. Okay. So the question I would like answered about Elizabeth Warren is this. Those plans, will they work? How's she going to pay for it? I will defend to the death, not the death, but you know, maybe like a couple nasty tweets. The idea of asking the question, how are you gonna pay for it? It's a legitimate question. Well-informed citizens should know how the candidate intends to pay for it. And Warren herself seems to believe this is a legitimate enough question. How to pay for it? I was just, just for a minute. That. You want to ask? Well, because that is the criticism, obviously, from Republicans to say, "How are you going to pay for it?" And even from some centrist Democrats, she includes, in fact, proudly includes her ideas for how to pay for her plans. Here she is talking about her plan for college debt forgiveness and free college during a CNN town hall. If we put that two cent wealth tax in place on the seventy-five thousand largest fortunes in this country, two cents. We can do universal childcare for every baby zero to five, universal pre-K, universal college, and knock back the student loan debt burden for 95% of our students and still have nearly a trillion dollars left over. Later on, on The View, Warren talked about not just her wealth tax subsidizing colleges and debt like she did in that CNN town hall. She also talked about what else it could fund. We can do so much more. Two cents. We can not only do that, we can also provide universal tuition-free technical school, two-year college, and four-year college for every one of our kids who wants to get an education. Plus, we can do universal child care for every baby age zero to five. Universal pre-K for every three-year-old and four-year-old in this country and raise the wages of every child care worker and preschool teacher to the level. You know what's going to happen. That is a lot. But according to the figures that Warren's camp has put out about the wealth tax, it will raise $2.75 trillion over a decade. 
The cost of the student debt forgiveness in college is $1.25 trillion. And Moody's estimates, and I got this estimate from Elizabeth Warren's own website, that her child care initiatives will cost $700 million. And this, by the way, the wealth tax, is not Elizabeth Warren's only money-raising scheme. She has proposed a corporate profits tax that will generate another trillion dollars. And she touts these sources of income and explains them and generates excitement for them. Her fans say, yeah, let's make those people making $50 million or more pay. And yeah, Amazon shouldn't pay zero in federal taxes. We want them to pay more. But she also has a lot more plans for spending money. The question I haven't seen answered is, will all her incoming money be enough to pay for all the outgoing expenses? I've looked into it, and the answer is no. Now, the larger, more complex answer is, well, you have to assume everything she and her preferred economic advisors assume, and you have to also discount all the naysayers who question if the wealthy won't really find clever ways to successfully avoid the taxes, and you have to maybe also build in dynamic scoring sometimes, though sometimes she doesn't use dynamic scoring. But you know what? What if you give her every benefit of the doubt, then will the incoming money be more than the outlays? Answer still no. So I'm just going to go by the numbers that Elizabeth Warren's team has put forward. They themselves. Childcare and early learning, $700 million. College loans and free college, $1.25 trillion. And this environmental plan that we haven't even talked about, $2 trillion. That right there accounts for all of the tax revenue in the wealth tax and the corporate tax. All the tax revenue that Elizabeth Warren talks about is taken up by those three plans. But Elizabeth Warren has more plans. She has, in fact, sponsored a bill, the American Housing and Economic Mobility Act of 2018. And apart from the bill, which isn't going to pass this Senate, she has proposed it as a plan, and that calls for $450 billion in investment. And then if you go through all her plans, there's not too many dollar figures, but here or there you get some $200 million in apprenticeship programs. She has a Puerto Rico debt forgiveness plan, but debt forgiveness includes $15 billion that the government will provide to Puerto Rico's creditors, some on the island, some off the island, not hedge funds though. A few plans will obviously cost something, but she doesn't say how much, like she has an agriculture plan and a public land plan. Apparently those have no attached costs. And the big one is this, she has not yet issued her health care plan. So the answer is her outlays far exceed her receivables. Raising these issues in certain circles mark me as a derp. But Anderson Cooper is a cool guy. He knows, be smart, don't just feel that you're concerned. Credit your concern to the some will say crowd. Because that is the criticism, obviously, from Republicans who say, how are you going to pay for it? And even from some centrist Democrats who say, doesn't this feed the narrative that Democrats just want to give everything away for free? Now, I don't think I'm either of those things. I'm not a Republican and I'm not a, oh, you're giving it away for free type critic. I just haven't seen the grand accounting and I haven't seen it put to Elizabeth Warren, do your ambitions exceed your coffers? There's a plenty good answer to this question and the answer is some version of it will be worth it, but present her with the figures and please get the answer. The question should be asked. Uh, Before the question is asked, I suppose a full accounting should be done. There's a big story in the New York Times online right now, I think it'll be in tomorrow's paper, about all of Elizabeth Warren's grand proposals, and yet it too does not present two sides of the ledger. It also, thankfully, doesn't pre-explain that sexism is surely felling Elizabeth Warren. So that's something. And luckily, 
We have 238 days before the Iowa caucuses to sort it all out. That's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They worry if there is a place in the Democratic Party for drinkers of sleepy time tea. T.J. Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, notes the irony that studies show liberals drink much more tea than conservatives, yet it is conservatives most associated with the Tea Party. The gist. Studies also show that Republicans favor brown liquor over clear liquors, which is the preference of liberals, but that while wild turkey and Jim Beam drinkers are very Republican, they also have a low propensity to show up at the polls. In other words, high blackout, low turnout. Oh, and a special shout out to a few new Slate Plus members who, when signing up for Slate Plus, said their favorite podcast was The Gist. Thanks to Linda Tetro from Coco Lola, Idaho, Henry Becker from Chicago, Illinois, and Paul Minigan from Wellwyn Garden City in the UK. Minigan from Wellwyn. And you too can join Slate Plus and say that The Gist is your favorite podcast. Why not say that? Go to slate.com slash plus.